Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Gen Con Warm-Up. Today is Tuesday, April 21st, 2020. We remain in the thick of the coronavirus worldwide pandemic, and as part of my effort to help those sheltering at home get through this difficult time, I am producing a new episode of Radio Free Mormon every weekday. This is the fifth week in which I have been engaged in this effort, and my goal is to continue putting up a new podcast every weekday until the state of emergency is lifted. We'll see how long I'm able to keep it up. Frankly, I'm surprised and somewhat impressed with myself that I've been able to keep it up this long. Thank you to all of those who are listening to this podcast, and thank you for the many wonderful comments that you have sent in to me through various means, whether it be through comments on my Facebook page or on the website, the RadioFreeMormon.org website. Well, tonight's episode is Gen Con Warm-Up, and as most of you have figured out, that stands for General Conference Warm-Up, the General Conference from two weeks ago, April of 2020. It has been two weeks since General Conference wound up. The talks are in the can, the recordings are up on the LDS Church website, and the texts of those talks are up on the website as well. I read through the several talks that were in the Saturday morning session of this past General Conference over the weekend, and I was surprised at the difference between just listening to the talks and actually reading them. By reading them, I was able to find a lot more things of interest in the talks than I was simply by listening. And tonight, in the Gen Con warm-up, I want to tell you a few stories about General Conference and yours truly from the past 40 years since I became a member of the church back in 1978. And through so doing, I hope to warm you up for the numerous podcasts that are going to be coming down the pike at you in the ensuing days and weeks, analyzing the different talks from this past General Conference. I've already given you a number of thoughts in previous podcasts here and there, specifically relating to the days of fasting and prayer. I covered those somewhat yesterday in my podcast titled Days of Thunder. Also, I have sprinkled throughout at least two podcasts prior to this some random thoughts I have about the new church logo, which was unveiled at the end of General Conference. And let me share a couple more thoughts about the new church logo with you now. I trust that everybody here has seen the new church logo. We don't know how much money and time and effort went into producing this new church logo, but here it is, and if President Nelson has his way, it is here to stay. I expect that this new logo will now be appearing not only on the church website, where, by the way, it immediately made its appearance after its unveiling in conference, but also on the printed editions of thousands, tens of thousands, and yes, even perhaps hundreds of thousands of various items, manuals, and handbooks that the church distributes to its members worldwide. I think one of the keys to having a good logo is that it is immediately apparent to the viewer what the logo means, what the logo stands for. And certainly we've got an image of the Christus, of Jesus Christ standing on top of the name of the church, i.e. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the words Jesus Christ blown up much bigger in its font size than any of the other words in the title. And Jesus appears to be standing on top of the name of the church, looking down at the name of the church. It's hard to tell from the logo whether Jesus is looking down at the name of the church in disdain, or whether he's looking down at the name of the church in some manner of fondness and affection. But what President Nelson told us when he unveiled the logo 
is that the box in which the name of the church is situated and on top of which Jesus is standing in the logo is supposed to represent the cornerstone because Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone as we read about in the New Testament. I believe it's Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 14 and I am going from memory there. So I hope that's correct. But the fact is, I believe that architecturally speaking, Jesus would not be standing on a cornerstone, at least not in your typical building, because a cornerstone is not the foundation. The foundation is something on which people would stand. The cornerstone, however, is a stone that is placed in the very corner of a building, like the cornerstone at the Nauvoo house. And the walls are built around the edges of the foundation, of course, and over, generally speaking, the cornerstone itself. So it's very difficult to actually stand on top of a cornerstone, as President Nelson tells us that Jesus Christ is doing in the logo. In addition to that, there is an arch, a curved line that extends over the top of Jesus Christ and down on both sides to the cornerstone. This appears to be purely ornamental in nature, but President Nelson once again comes to the rescue and informs us that this represents the tomb from which Jesus is walking on the morning of his resurrection. So the arch is not simply an arch, it is the tomb. Now, I recognize the fact that the LDS Church has had a hard time for many, many, many years coming up with a symbol that can represent Mormonism because Mormons have for about a hundred years now eschewed the symbol of the cross. And I know many times in church talks, I have heard church leaders talk about why it is that they do not use the cross as a symbol of Mormonism. Even though, thanks to the research, I believe it was of Mike Reed, I found out that actually the LDS church was quite comfortable with using the cross in much of its early architecture up until around the turn of the 20th century. At that point, there seems to have been a concerted effort to distance the LDS Church from the cross and to not use it in any of its architecture or any of its designs. And after that, we began to hear the reasoning for it and the justification for not using the cross is that this was the symbol of Jesus's death. We believe in a living Christ, the living Christ who came forth from the tomb on Easter morning, not the dying Christ who was crucified on Good Friday. And just below that justification, we could sometimes hear the idea that really we want to distance ourselves from other sects of Christianity, from other sects of apostate Christianity, and not use the same symbol for their version of apostate Christianity that we use for our version of the true Christianity. And I will tell you right now that all of a sudden, right when I was recording at that moment, my computer decided that it was time to shut down and update itself. So a substantial amount of time has gone by. While I've been recording this podcast for my computer to update itself, I tried to get it to stop. I tried to get it to wait, but it insisted. It was like it had to go to the bathroom. It could not wait to update. So now I have less time in which to record today's podcast, and so I need to speed things up a bit. The main point that I'm getting at with regards to the new church logo is that I understand that the church wants to have a symbol of Christianity, and so they have a picture of Jesus. I get that. They don't want the empty cross. That would make it too much like the rest of Christianity. They want to be distinctive. They were distinctive before with the figure of Moroni blowing his horn, but now they want to make sure it's clear to other people and to other churches that we are Christian too, that we believe in Jesus Christ. So number one, if having the name Jesus Christ in the name of the church does not convince other people 
that we believe in Jesus Christ. If blowing that name up until it's much bigger than any of the other names in the title of the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if that is not sufficient to convince them we believe in Jesus Christ, if adding the new title to the Book of Mormon, not only the Book of Mormon, but as I played yesterday, 1982, the title was changed and the words were added to the title of the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. If that is not sufficient to get other people to understand that we believe in Jesus Christ, and if President Nelson's single-minded focus of getting rid of Mormon from the Mormon lexicon, which is kind of like taking Hamlet out of Hamlet, but if his emphasis on compelling members to say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints every time they could just say the Mormon Church or the LDS Church, and he wants to do that because he wants people to know that we believe in Jesus Christ. If that is not sufficient to get other people to understand that we believe in Jesus Christ, I've got a feeling that adding an image of Jesus Christ above the name of the church in the new church logo is probably not going to do the trick either. Something else is at play here. President Nelson, and it probably has to do more with the teachings of the church and how they are viewed by other Christian churches than it has to do with the name of Jesus and the title of the church and a new logo with the image of Jesus. After a while, I've got to be honest with you, after a while, President Nelson, it starts to look kind of desperate. It looks like you will do anything in order to be accepted as a member of the Christian clubhouse. It is interesting that when you look at other Christian churches, churches like the Baptist Church, well, Nobody thinks that they don't believe in Jesus Christ. We kind of all know that they believe in Jesus Christ. The Baptist Church is a Christian church, but they don't have to have the name Jesus Christ in their title for other people to know it. And there are many, many churches like this that are Christian churches that don't have the name Jesus Christ in their title, and yet everybody understands that they're Christian. On the flip side, even though I understand as a member of the church for over 40 years now that yes, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does believe in Jesus Christ, I think that when you're playing to the audience that I get the feeling you're playing to, President Nelson, that simply adding a new image of Jesus Christ into a new church logo is probably not going to get them to believe that we accept Jesus Christ any more than any of the other steps that we've done over the last several decades have been able to get that message across. And finally, about the new church logo, having the box on which Jesus stands and in which the name of the church appears in the new logo, saying that that is the cornerstone and representing Jesus Christ, well, it doesn't look like a cornerstone. It's not where a real cornerstone would be. There is nothing about it that suggests that it is a cornerstone. In the same way, the arch over Jesus Christ, that line that circles up and over his head, does not look like a tomb. And a person coming to this, even if they're well-versed in the gospel accounts, even if they know about Jesus rising from the tomb on Easter Sunday, even if they know all these things, is probably not going to be able to put two and two together and see this as a tomb out of which Jesus is walking. So all I'm saying here is that if you have to explain what a logo means, it's probably not the best logo in the world. It's kind of like having to explain a joke. If you have to explain the punchline of a joke, it's probably not very funny. So let me go on and make a couple of more announcements before I get to the heart of tonight's warm-up for General Conference. One of those announcements is this. I am going to have to start recording and actually forcing myself to record less every day, not more, less every day. Because yesterday I ended up recording a podcast that wound up being an hour long. And that took me almost the entire day, not just to record it, but also to edit it. And by the way, I get into the office here at six o'clock in the morning, and that is when I begin recording. So when I say it took me almost the whole day, that is a lot 
of time that I had to put into that podcast. Now, I'm not saying that you have to cry for me, Argentina. All I'm saying is that I have to force myself to record less because I cannot afford to take the entire day every day on podcasting. There are a number of other things that I have to take care of here in my underground bunker at work. So I hope that you will forgive me if the podcast begin shrinking in size. I want to have them to be at least 30 minutes long, but no more than 45 minutes long. And we'll see if I can do that in today's podcast. There are also a number of listeners to this podcast who have sent in comments to me in various means. I have one listener overseas who sends me periodically postcards of support to Radio Free Mormon. A number of you have sent comments to me on the website at RadioFreeMormon.org. A lot of you have discovered the Facebook page and are sending me comments there. And the other thing is that when I get done with the recording and the editing for a podcast during the day and finally get it up in the early to mid-afternoon, then I spend time trying to respond to all the different comments that have come my way. I am not going to be able to continue to do that, at least not at the rate that I have been doing it so far. Once again, it's simply a matter of time constraints, and I apologize for this. But I want to let you know up front that if I'm not responding as much as I have been in the past, that you will not take it personally or think I am ignoring you. It's simply that I cannot afford to be able to do that as much as I would like to. Also, I'd like to read on the podcast several comments that I get from listeners. And I don't want you to be offended if yours is not one of the comments that I'm reading on the podcast. Please do not be offended. I love and appreciate all of your comments. But for various reasons, there are certain ones that I have picked and chosen in order to convey on the podcast. And one of those has to do with a comment I got on the Facebook page over the weekend. One of the listeners to this podcast has a great deal of talent in graphic design and has mocked up a new logo for Radio Free Mormon. It's just a proposed logo, but it looks absolutely wonderful. And I want to thank that listener for going to all the time and effort of coming up with that logo. The idea that he suggested is that we might want to start doing Radio Free Mormon merchandise, starting, of course, with t-shirts. I do not know if there is anybody out there who would even be interested in having a Radio Free Mormon t-shirt. Please let me know if that's something that you would be interested in if we were able to get that kind of merchandise up and running. The other side of it is, and I have to warn you up front, that even if a lot of you want a t-shirt, it may not be something that is feasible to get off the ground, at least not at this time. And certainly, I'm not going to be able to do it myself. My time is taken up in creating the podcast, in producing the podcast, and in posting the podcast. So if there's anybody out there who knows anything about creating t-shirts, about merchandising t-shirts, about delivering t-shirts, and would like to volunteer for that duty, I would be more than happy to hear from you as well. This is not something I'm planning on making a lot of money from. In fact, it's not something that I'm planning on making any money from as far as any merchandising goes. And yet, because there is a relatively limited audience, I mean, it is in the thousands, but I expect that those of you who are listening who would be even interested in merchandise would be much fewer than the thousands who listen to this podcast. And of course, the fewer the number of people who are interested in getting merchandise, the larger the price has to be to cover the overhead and the expense of producing the merchandise. So please let me know. We'll see if this is something that might work out. We'll put it on the back burner for now and wait to see how much interest there is in this idea before we proceed with any firm plans along those lines. Thank you once again to that listener for that wonderful logo that you came up with. Another comment that I got on my Facebook page comes from a listener who is actually right now pursuing his PhD dissertation in mathematics. And the comment this listener sent to me has to do with my last podcast from Friday 
dealing with the complexity in the Book of Mormon account of Jesus' visit to the Nephites. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here. I know that I probably wore out my welcome with a number of you by having three podcasts on consecutive days last week dealing with this issue. It's one that I find of great interest. I know it is not one that is of interest to many of the listeners to this podcast. I just want to bring up this one really, really interesting point that this listener sent to me. If you recall, I talked about the chiastic structure of Jesus' visit to the Nephites. And I went over that in some detail in the third of those episodes, which I titled Three-Dimensional Chess. And I went to pains when I was talking about this chiastic structure to emphasize the fact that this was not a perfect chiasm. There was one element that was out of place, and I think I said it three times, because there's nothing worse than a person who's trying to force the language of a text to fit a chiasm, even when it doesn't really fit. And this does not really fit, and I wanted to make that really clear. And the way it did not fit is that the one element, other than this, it was a perfect chiasm, but the one element that was immediately before the center point in the chiastic structure did not appear immediately after that center point going out and working its way out of the chiasm. Instead, it did not appear right after the center point, but it was three more steps removed coming out of the chiastic structure that it did appear. So it does appear on both sides of the center, but it was out of order, three steps coming out. So having said that and been over backwards to make it clear that I was not saying this was a perfect chiasm because it is not a perfect chiasm, this listener, the one seeking his PhD in mathematics, advises me of something that is somewhat startling to me. And I found this out yesterday afternoon when I saw this message. It was after yesterday's podcast went up. And apparently, according to this listener, it is actually a common attribute of some chiasms to have exactly this variation in the structure, to have the element that is found immediately before the center point not be found immediately after, but to be actually exactly three steps removed from the center. And he sent me two examples of this sort of thing, one from the Book of Mormon and another one from the Old Testament. And it appears that this really is a thing, that actually this is a standard form of chiastic structure, at least in the ancient world, to not have a perfect mirror, but to have this one element and only this one element in a different position going out than it is going in. Now, think about this. This is why this blew my mind. If I did not know this, and I had no idea about this at the time, I am not an expert on chiasm, I just know the basic elements of it. But if this is really a form of chiasm, and I find this form of chiasm in 3rd Nephi, and I don't know that this is a form of chiasm, but I think it's out of order, but it actually ends up being in order, according to an ancient form of chiasm, then I am totally excited about this. And that's another piece of the puzzle and another piece of the paper that I'm going to have to add to it before I submit it to publishers for consideration. So thank you. I've got the best listeners in the world. I've got the smartest listeners in the world. And I have the most talented listeners in the world. So we'll see how that plays out. But now I want to go to a few stories about past general conferences, things that have stood out to me over the last 40 years as I have been attending and watching General Conference, going all the way back to October General Conference of 1978, the first General Conference that occurred after my baptism in June of 1978. Now, I will tell you, I was totally excited to watch General Conference. At the time, I lived up in Washington State. Channel 7, Cairo, the CBS affiliate, was owned and operated by the LDS Church, or it had an LDS manager, or there was some connection. It may be owned by Bonneville Media. But regardless of the reason, what would happen is that on Sundays, I don't think it was on Saturdays, but on Sundays, they would actually broadcast the sessions of General Conference 
on CBS, on Channel 7, up in the Seattle-Tacoma area. And I was absolutely thrilled to be able to sit there before my TV, turn it on, and listen to the words of men who were prophets of God and apostles of Jesus Christ. I had been totally primed to be expecting wonderful things to come out of their mouths, as probably all of us have been at some time in our life. And as I turned it on, and as I watched expectantly and with great anticipation and with great eagerness, I found myself slowly being deflated, as what I heard talk after talk was not inspiring, it was not edifying, it was not illuminating, all it was was boring. Here I was expecting to be sitting at the feet of prophets and learning their wisdom, and really all it seemed to be was that I had a front row seat at a business meeting. And not just any business meeting, but a really boring business meeting. And this was one of those steps that I took in my career as a Mormon, where my expectations as a Mormon of the LDS church, the expectations that the church had taught me to expect, came squarely face to face with the reality of Mormonism. And the result was disappointment. And this has happened time after time in my life. Perhaps it's happened in yours too, where we are told to expect certain things from the church. We are taught to view the leaders of the church in a certain way, and it's a wonderful way, and it's an incredible way. And then when the reality of the LDS church that I've experienced meets those grandiose expectations, the result is disappointment to me. It wasn't quite as bad as finding out that Santa Claus is not real, but there were some similarities to the experience, I've got to tell you. And over the course of decades, it has slowly dawned upon me that the church is really not what it claims to be. The leaders are not inspired of God the way they claim to be. They are not prophets of God like they claim to be, and they are not apostles of Jesus Christ like they claim to be. And interestingly enough, all I had to do to be able to see that and to come to that realization was give myself permission to say it, even if it was only in my mind, to give myself permission to say the words that the church is not what it claims to be. It's something that I couldn't see until I said it, and once I said it, then I could see it. And then, of course, as I'm seeing this and coming to this realization, at the same time, I'm doing what thousands of other members do, which is that as the reality is meeting the expectation, I dumb down the expectation to match the reality. No longer did I have this exalted belief as to what the leaders were and what they did and what they experienced and what they said and who they saw, but... I dumbed down my expectations of them to meet the reality of what it is I experienced. And it's kind of like in some school systems or university systems where we read sometimes news stories about how the kids in the school system are not doing very well on their grades. And so instead of trying to get their grades higher, what the school system does is it lowers the standards so that the kids will pass even though they're not learning anything more than they were before. In order to give the appearance that the students are doing better in their learning, that the teachers are doing better in their teaching, that there is improvement academically, instead of actually doing the work to make that happen, instead, the easier way is just to lower the standards so that the same students doing the same work manage now to all of a sudden be getting better grades than they were before. Why? Not because the reality has changed, but because the expectation and the standard has been lowered. That's kind of what I see that happened in my life with regards to the LDS Church and specifically with its leaders. And fundamentally, what I think is that I did over the course of many years is that I lowered the standards for the leaders of the church so that they could pass for profits. 
The reality, as I experienced it, was not what I was taught, that these guys are prophets of God and apostles of Jesus Christ, and so I dumbed down the standards. I lowered the bar as to what constitutes a prophet so that these guys could get over it. And eventually, I'm the one who got over it. I got over this idea that I had to lower the expectations and dumb down the standards for them to be prophets, and I was able to match the reality versus my expectation and simply come to the conclusion that the LDS church is not what it claims to be, the leaders are not what they claim to be, and the leaders are not what the members of the church claim that they are. Okay, now I want to share with you some of the highlights of General Conference. Now, looking for highlights in General Conference is not an easy thing. I have been attending General Conference and watching General Conference for 40 years. 40 years means 80 General Conferences. They're twice a year, so 40 years is 80 General Conference weekends. Can you imagine that? There's 10 hours every General Conference, so that ends up being 10 times 80 is 800 hours of General Conference. Now, I haven't seen all of the sessions of General Conference in the past 40 years, but there are 800 hours that exist of General Conference. And one would think it would be an easy thing to find highlights after 800 hours of General Conference. But really, looking for highlights in General Conference, even over 40 years, is like looking for islands of interest in an ocean of banality. But nevertheless, there are a couple of things that have happened and a couple of stories that have happened in association with General Conference that I want to share with you once again as part of our Gen Con warm-up before we get into the talks from last General Conference, April of 2020. I've already told you about my extreme disillusionment at the first General Conference that I watched back in October of 1978. I did not find it interesting. I found it very boring. But I also knew at the same time that I had been primed to believe this is going to be the best thing since sliced bread. This was going to be fantastic. This was going to be overwhelming. And I had been primed that way because I had other members of the church, including my friends, telling me that. So I knew that that's what they thought about General Conference. And therefore, I could not say that I found it any different. I was pressured. It was peer pressure. It was soft pressure. But it was pressure nonetheless that I felt to say how wonderful General Conference was when I was talking with the other members in my ward and with my friends who were members, even though at the same time, I knew deep inside that I didn't believe a word of what I was saying. But I said it in order to meet their expectations of what I would experience watching General Conference. And I do tend to think that there's a lot of that that goes on in the church. We're always gushing about how great General Conference is. We're looking forward to General Conference after it's over, how great General Conference was. We were spiritually fed. Didn't you love that talk? Didn't you love this talk? Didn't you love that speaker? Wasn't that logo great? What about that proclamation? Hey, that Hosanna shout, that was awesome. But really, I think that among many members, and probably even a majority of members they actually know, it's not that great. They find it boring, too. But nevertheless, they still feel pressured to say how wonderful it was, even while at the same time knowing in their heart that they don't believe that at all. I cannot read the minds of other Mormons. All I know is that this is what I've experienced. It's what other members of the church have experienced that I've talked to and who have opened up to me. And so I've got to think that we're probably not the only ones, that this is probably a more widely spread phenomenon than just among a small group of members. And this is what passes for authenticity in the LDS church. Not that you're authentic to yourself, but that you're authentic to the church. That's the kind of authenticity that is important if you're going to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So that's one story about General Conference. I will tell you that back in the day, back in the late 70s, back in the 80s, there actually were occasionally 
a really good speaker in general conference. Now, Elder Holland today is pretty good as far as a speaker goes. I know he has trouble with the truth every now and again. Bill Reel has talked about that. I think something happened to Bill Reel as a result of his talking about that publicly. But really, Elder Holland is a pretty good speaker, especially compared to the rest of the batch of church leaders. He has the gift of the Blarney in more than one way. Another good speaker in general conference is Elder Dieter Uchtdorf, who went down a bit in the polls after his talk this most recent general conference. But nevertheless, I think that most of us would agree that as far as church leaders go, he is a pretty good speaker. He might even be the favorite speaker of most members of the church, which is ironic when you think that the best speaker in the LDS church is the only apostle for whom English is not his first language. But really, back in the day, back in the late 70s and in the 80s, there was one speaker who was really on fire when he spoke in general conference. He was the most interesting speaker that I have ever heard in general conference. He was consistently energetic, enthusiastic, and his name was Legrand Richards. Now, Legrand Richards is famous, at least in the day, for having written the book, A Marvelous Work and a Wonder. I don't know how much that book is read today, but it is a very, very good book written about the fundamental basic building blocks of Mormonism. And it was written by Legrand Richards, I believe when he was the mission president of the Southern States Mission. So this would have been quite some time ago, maybe back in the 1930s or 40s. But this was his version that he put together of the missionary discussions that his missionaries taught to investigators. And I got that book shortly after I was baptized. It was very helpful to me to understand the principles of Mormonism. It was written in an engaging style, in an interesting style, and I appreciated it very much. But Legrand Richards, now an apostle in the church, whenever he would speak, he was always full of vim and vigor. Now, he lived to be very old. He was in his 90s when he passed away, which I believe was in the mid-1980s. But he lived to be in his 90s. He was approaching 100 when he finally passed away, and yet his vim and his vigor never flagged. And it was actually Legrand Richards who gave an account of the revelation, lifting the priesthood ban and temple ban. And the reason I think of what he said about the experience is because unlike the other accounts that we get from other people who were present, who talk of it in rather vague but still glowing terms and talk about the wonderful revelation that was received and how they knew this was coming from God, Legrand Richards was much more down to earth in the way he recounted the experience. Let me see if I can find this. Here it is. This is from an interview of Legrand Richards, who was, of course, an apostle in the LDS Church. He was interviewed by Wesley Walters and Chris Velachos shortly after the ban was lifted, and he was asked about what he experienced during the course of this watershed event. And here's an excerpt from this interview. This is Wesley Walters asking a question to Legrand Richards. On this revelation of the priesthood to the Negro, I've heard all kinds of stories. I've heard that Christ appeared to the apostles. I've heard that Joseph Smith appeared. And then I heard another story that Spencer Kimball had had a concern about this for some time and simply shared it with the apostles. And they decided that this was the right time to move in that direction. Are any of these stories true? Or are they all? So Wesley Walters is asking a question saying, I've heard all these stories about miraculous events happening associated with this revelation. And I've also heard a rather mundane and pedestrian explanation about this revelation that President Kimball had been concerned about it for some time, shared it with the apostles, and that the apostles decided that this was the right time to move in that direction. And then Wesley Walters asks Legrand Richards, which of those are true or are they all true? And here is Elder Legrand Richards' response. Well, the last one is pretty true. So immediately, Legrand Richards goes with the last explanation, the mundane explanation, the non-miraculous 
explanation and then he elaborates on it. Well, the last one is pretty true. And I might tell you what provoked it in a way. Down in Brazil, there is so much Negro blood in the population there that it is hard to get leaders that don't have Negro blood in them. We just built a temple down there. It's going to be dedicated in October. All those people, and that would have been October of 1978, by the way, all those people with Negro blood in them have been raising money to build that temple. If we don't change, then they can't even use it. Well, Brother Kimball worried about it, and he prayed a lot about it. He asked each one of us of the twelve if we would pray, and we did, that the Lord would give him the inspiration to know what the will of the Lord was. Then he invited each one of us in his office, individually, because you know, when you are in a group, you can't always express everything that's in your heart. Now, that's really an interesting insight into the meetings with the apostles and the first presidency. Elder Legrand Richards, one of the oldest and most senior apostles that's ever existed in the church because of his extreme age, says, when you are in a group, you can't always express everything that's in your heart. And so because of that, Spencer Kimball had invited each of the apostles individually, one at a time and separately into his office to talk about it. You're part of the group, see, he goes on. You're part of the group, see. So he interviewed each one of us personally to see how we felt about it. And he asked us to pray about it. Then he asked each one of us to hand in all the references we had for or against that proposal. So this is sounding very methodical, very somewhat political and savvy, actually, on the part of President Kimball, because I think he knew where he wanted to go with this, but he also knew that he needed to bring all of the apostles along with him. So then he asked each one of us to hand in all the references we had for or against that proposal. See, he was thinking favorably toward giving the colored people the priesthood. By the way, I apologize if any of these references are offensive to anybody. I'm just reading the quote from Legrand Richards, who was basically using the language of his day, and not just of his day, but of his youth and of his growing up time, which would have been in the early 20th century. So see, he was thinking favorably toward giving the colored people the priesthood. Then we had a meeting where we meet every week in the temple. So this is the regular meeting with all of them present. And we discussed it as a group circle and then held another prayer circle after the close of that meeting. And he, President Kimball, led in the prayer, praying that the Lord would give us the inspiration that we needed to do the thing that would be pleasing to him. And that's capital H, so that's pleasing to God, not President Kimball. And for the blessing of his children. So then what happens after that? Well, more meetings ensue. And then the next Thursday, we meet every Thursday, the presidency came with this little document written out to make the announcement, to see how we'd feel about it. So the First Presidency writes up a document after all of these meetings as a group and individually with the apostles. The First Presidency now writes up a document and presents it to the apostles at a group meeting on Thursday to see how we'd feel about it, going back to Elder LeGrand Richard's statement in the interview, to see how we'd feel about it and present it in written form. Well, some of the members of the Twelve suggested a few changes in the announcement. And then in our meeting there, we all voted in favor of it. The Twelve and the First Presidency. One member of the Twelve, Mark Peterson, was down in South America. But Brother Benson, of course that would be Ezra Taft Benson, but Brother Benson, our president, had arranged to know where he could be reached by phone. And right while we were in that meeting in the temple, Brother Kimball talked with Brother Peterson and read him the article. And he, Marky e. Peterson, approved of it. 
So I know there's been a lot of talk in some circles about Marky Peterson or other apostles being out of town when this decision was made in Salt Lake City. The idea being that President Kimball had to do it behind these certain apostles back because they would have opposed it otherwise and so they had to be out of town before they could push this through. But according to LeGrand Richards, everybody was present, even Marky Peterson, who was out of town, Arrangements were made to have him on the phone and that Marky Peterson approved of it. Wesley Walters then asked the question, there wasn't a special document as a revelation that he had written down. And Elder Richard says, we discussed it in our meeting. What else should we say besides that announcement? And we decided that was sufficient, that no more needed to be said. And that's the end of that excerpt from that interview by Elder LeGrand Richards, a personal witness and senior apostle, at the meeting at which it was decided to approve the document written by the First Presidency lifting the priesthood and temple ban on blacks. He recounts nothing miraculous. He recounts nothing visionary. He recounts no special visitations from Jesus or Joseph Smith or anybody else. Instead, the way Elder Richards recounts it is very methodical, is very political, and as very non-miraculous. So that's a little introduction to Elder LeGrand Richards. I want to find a clip here from one of his conference talks back in the 70s or possibly the 80s to play a little bit for you so you can get a flavor for his enthusiasm when he spoke in general conference, why it is that I enjoyed it whenever he took the stand to speak, and why it is it was such a great loss when he passed away. And there has been nobody who has appeared as a leader in the church who has come close to filling his shoes as a speaker in general conference. Okay, in researching talks by LeGrand Richards in conference on YouTube, I found a couple of small clips which will give you a flavor for his ability as a speaker. Not only are these small clips good for showing you his ability as a speaker, it also shows you another thing that he was famous for, and that was talking too long in general conference. He would frequently get up there and just go on and on and on, and they had to get him off the stage because there were other speakers lined up who needed to speak as well, and they only have two hours for every session, and he kept going long. He was famous for for it. So here in this first of two clips, you will hear him talking and then you will hear when he sees the red light on the lectern go on and off because they have a red light up there on the lectern. This was in the tabernacle when General Conference was held there. And you can hear when he sees the red light, he mentions the red light and talks about the fact that he's getting the red light and so he has to wind up. And then he continues going a little bit more. Play the tape on that one. This is great. You can't buy that kind of feeling in the hearts of young people with money. The Lord who creates the feelings of the human breast is the only one who can put that kind of faith into the hearts of his people. Is this red now? Is my turn to quit? <laughs> I think they got the red button on here, and I mustn't indulge on the other man's time. By the way, that strange sound you hear in the middle of General Conference is actual laughter on the part of the audience. This is not the fake laughter that they give when a general authority tells some kind of lame joke and it's sort of the obligatory ha-ha-ha. No, this is genuine gut-busting laughter from the members of the audience. LeGrand Richards was a favorite among the members of the church, especially at General Conference. And on another occasion, the red light on the lectern, or the red button as he calls it, wasn't enough to do the trick. And actually, Ezra Taft Benson, who was seated immediately behind LeGrand Richards and to his left, had to reach out his cane and tap him on the leg in order to try and get him to stop talking, to finish his talk, so that they could proceed with General Conference and the next speaker. This one is great. Once again, lots of laughter here. 
This debate can go forward on the basis that you set it up. And if not, I'm going to leave and ask my companions to leave and ask our members to leave. And we leave it with you to settle with your people for what's transpired here tonight. I said he met him on the street a number of times after that, but he nicked his head so he didn't need to speak to me. <laughs> Do I have one for one more? Shall I time up? Go ahead. No. Now that's, that's what Isaiah meant when he said that they were teaching doctrines of men, precepts of men. Now I'll give you one more. Down in Quitman, Georgia, I, while I was mission president, next time I went there about four months later, he read my, of my coming in the newspaper, and there he was standing outside of that little church. And as we shook hands, I said I'd certainly be happy to know what you thought of my last sermon here. He said, Mr. Richards, I've been thinking about it ever since. And I believe every word you said on that light have heard the rest. We never get talked out. That's why Brother Benson has tapped me on the lay here to get me down. <laughs> now I'll tell you one more if there's time for it. I'd rather let the Apostle Paul answer that question. He said, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which is preached unto you, let him be accursed. And we didn't have any more arguments there. I think my time's up. God bless you all. I love the Lord. I love his church. I love the saints. I know them all, all but their names. God bless you, I pray, and leave you my blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Another thing I'd like to say about General Conference is back in 1985, I was working between undergraduate school and law school. I was working at an IRS facility in Austin, Texas. And what I was doing there was simply data entry. I was taking the numbers from tax forms and tax returns that had been sent in, entering those numbers into the computer. And that's what I did all day, every day, eight hours a day. With my left hand, I would be turning the pages of the tax returns in order to see what the numbers were. And with my right hand, I would be plugging those numbers in like a maniac into the computer using a tin key. Now that was kind of difficult to do for the first couple of weeks, but after a while, it became mindless work. I could do it without really even thinking about what I was doing. And so what I decided to do was to use that time when I'm sitting there at the IRS facility doing this mindless work of entering numbers from tax returns into the computer system. I decided to supplement my activity by listening to general conference talks because that's what a good Mormon would do. At the Institute building where we went to church at the University of Texas at Austin, they had several years of conference all recorded on cassette tape and individually packaged. They'd have one general conference in one package and they'd have maybe 20 cassette tapes in it. There would be one talk on each side of the cassette tape. And at the time I had a Walkman, a Sony Walkman, if any of you can remember what that is. And I would take that to work. I would put the headphones on. I would plug in a general conference tape and I would listen to general conference all day long while I am working at the IRS. And saying I listen to them all day long is probably a bit of an overstatement. I would have listened to them all day long, except for the fact that playing a cassette tape in a Sony Walkman is really, really hard on the batteries. It drains the juice out of them 
really quickly. So I would listen to the general conference on cassette tape until the juice from the batteries ran out. They couldn't power the cassette tape anymore, but there was still enough juice in them to listen to AM radio. So I would listen to conference until I couldn't anymore, and then I would listen to AM radio during the rest of the day. I went through a lot of AA batteries that way. Was there anything remarkable that I heard in any of those sessions of general conference? No, there was not. There was nothing memorable. The only thing that's memorable is the fact that I actually went to those links to listen to General Conference. It was something that I imagined made myself feel good because that is what a good Mormon would do. That's what a good Mormon should do. A good Mormon should like General Conference so much that he will listen to General Conference from years past on cassette tape on his Sony Walkman at work. It doesn't make any difference that I didn't learn anything. It doesn't make any difference that it was boring, both of which things I tacitly recognized and acknowledged. But the fact that I was listening to General Conference is what a good Mormon would do, and so I felt good about myself as a Mormon for doing it. I would also take church books with me to work so I could read it during the breaks in the day. Yeah, I was really, really immersed in Mormonism and in studying Mormonism, in case you didn't know. Once again, this is 1985. Another thing that happened in 1985 at General Conference, and I believe it was April General Conference of 1985 when Elder Bruce R. McConkie bore his last testimony because he had been suffering from cancer. He knew there wasn't a lot of time left. I figure he knew he wasn't going to make it to the next General Conference in October of 1985, and he gave what would become his last talk in April General Conference 1985. Now, the reason I remember this, this actually was memorable. And one of the very few memorable moments that I can look back and point to and identify in General Conference is I was at the Stake Center in Austin, Texas during this General Conference. There was a big screen that was pulled down in front of the chapel area and up there on the screen were the speakers. So they are giant-sized people up there on the screen. I'm sitting out there in the audience. And I remember that as Bruce R. McConkie spoke and as he began to bear his testimony at the end. Now, remember that it's not general knowledge that he has cancer and that this is going to be his last general conference. That's only stuff that we members, at least in Austin, only found out about afterward. But at the end of his talk, he began testifying about his knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he said something along the lines of that he knows that Jesus lives and in a future day when he wets Jesus's feet with his tears, he will not know any more certainly at that day that Jesus is the Christ than he does now. Now, on the one hand, in retrospect, that is actually a tacit admission on Bruce R. McConkie's part that he has never seen Jesus. Because if he had actually seen Jesus, as the apostles tend to put out there and as the church puts out there on behalf of the apostles, if he had really seen Jesus, why would he say he won't know any more surely at a future date when he sees Jesus than he does now that Jesus really lives? It only makes sense if he hasn't really seen Jesus. But setting that to the side, and that was certainly a thought that never occurred to me at the time and is only occurring to me now as I'm thinking back on what it was he said. At the time and in real life, when he is actually testifying those words and his image is up there on the screen in front of the stake center, I had a remarkable experience. You know, in Acts, I believe it's in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when it talks about the spirit being like a rushing wind that the apostles felt, I had a similar experience here, and it was completely unexpected. I mean, it's general conference, right? Nothing interesting happens during general conference. But while Bruce R. McConkie was giving his final testimony, I felt as if a mighty wind rushed down from his image on the screen and swooped past me, and I felt it blowing over me as he was testifying. Now, there was no real wind there, of course. There was not a hair of my head that was moved, but I felt the spiritual wind rush over me as Elder McConkie was bearing what would become his final testimony. 
I have never had an experience like that before or since. And since that time, I have come to know more about Elder McConkie and his personal life and the way he conducted himself in relation to other people. And I have lost a lot of respect for Elder McConkie, not only as an apostle, but as a human being. I'm sure he had a lot of good qualities. I don't mean to denigrate him completely, but believe me, he had a lot of defects in his character. But in spite of those realizations that I've come to after the fact, it still does not change the experience that I really had of feeling this mighty wind rush over me as he was testifying. And so I want to play now those words from 1985, General Conference, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, bearing his final testimony and relive that experience with you here today. Play the tape. And now as pertaining to this perfect atonement, wrought by the shedding of the blood of God, I testify that it took place in Gethsemane and at Golgotha. And as pertaining to Jesus Christ, I testify that he is the Son of the living God, who was crucified for the sins of the world. He is our Lord, our God, and our King. This I know of myself, independent of any other person. I am one of his witnesses, and in the coming day I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet, and shall wet his feet with my tears. But I shall not know any better then that I know now that he is God's almighty Son, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood and in no other way. God grant that all of us may walk in the light as God our Father is in the light, so that, according to the promises, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, will cleanse us from all sin. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Okay, now I only have a few minutes here left in this podcast. So I want to tell you kind of an amusing story that happened several general conferences ago. This might have been five years ago. It might have been seven years ago. Anyway, all that I know is that Elder Uchtdorf was still President Uchtdorf at the time of this general conference. Now, I've told you before about my friend Bruce, the guy who baptized me, the guy who was my best friend in high school and who baptized me in June of 1978, the guy who was instrumental in my becoming a member of the LDS Church. Well, Bruce has since gone on to work for a major pharmaceutical company. And as part of that, he has lived for many years in New York State. On occasion, he will fly out to my neck of the woods, which is on the other side of the country. And when he does so, he will let me and all the old friends know that he's coming over to see if we can get together to relive old times and hang out. And we do that with some regularity. It happens maybe once a year or so. And coincidentally, as often as not, when Bruce comes over, it falls on a conference weekend, whether it's in April or whether it's in October. But this has happened on more than one occasion. It has happened at least three times that when he has flown over from New York to meet with family and friends and he's only here for the weekend, it will fall on conference weekend. Now, you might think that under the circumstances, a person flying all the way across country who's only going to be in town for one weekend a year would skip general conference and we use that time to spend with family and friends. But no, Bruce is a TBM. He puts the T 
NTBM. He is an extremely faithful Latter-day Saint, and he always has been and continues to be to this day. So when he flies out here, if it's a conference weekend, he is going to attend every single session of General Conference. He's going to attend the Saturday morning, the Saturday afternoon, the priesthood session, and the Sunday morning and the Sunday afternoon session. Anything else has to be fitted around General Conference. Any getting together with friends, any getting together even with family has to be fitted in around General Conference. So on this one General Conference weekend when Bruce was out here, I had driven down to meet up with him and I have to drive some ways from where I lived at the time in order to get down to the stake center located in Sumner, Washington. And that is where we were going to meet at the stake center. And we were going to meet on Saturday evening at the priesthood session of General Conference that year. We were going to sit through priesthood session and then we were gonna go out afterward and hang out with friends and do stuff. So anyway, I drove all the way down to Sumner, Washington. I got to the stake center. This is the building that was actually new back in June of 1978 when I was baptized there by Bruce. So there's a lot of memories for me in that building. It was very bright outside. The sun was out. Of course, it was getting closer to the horizon because now it is five o'clock p.m., which is when priesthood session starts in the Pacific time zone. It starts at six in Utah, but over here, it's five o'clock. So it's five o'clock p.m. It's very bright outside. Priesthood session has already started. Yes, I'm a little bit late. I hate to tell you this, but I was a little bit late for the beginning of general conference priesthood session. Bruce was already there, however, and I remember walking in the back of the building, walking through the hallways and coming in through a back door. Now, the overflow section had been opened. All the chairs are up and filled in the gym as well as in the chapel area. This place is packed, but it's also absolutely dark in there. And of course, it's dark in there because they're projecting the conference up on a screen at the front of the chapel. And making the darkness even greater for me, I had just come in from a bright day, and now I'm in the back of this huge mammoth room, actually two rooms with the divider open. And it is packed with people. It is completely dark to me. I can't see anything. Slowly my eyes are adjusting, but even as they adjust, it's still very dark. The place is full of people. I have no idea where Bruce is sitting. So the idea comes to me. It was a brilliant idea for me. Use my cell phone. So I texted to Bruce. I said, I am here. Where are you? And of course, Bruce is, see, <laughs> Bruce is two rows from the front. So I have to walk all the way through all these people from the back, all the way down the aisle to the very front of the chapel. And there I found Bruce. But what happened is, is that when I entered, and as I'm trying to find Bruce, President Uchtdorf is on the screen and he's giving a talk. And it takes me a couple of minutes to get up there to Bruce and I'm trying to find him. And while I'm trying to find him, I'm also listening to what it is that Elder Uchtdorf, excuse me, President Uchtdorf at the time is saying. And he's telling the story about this guy who bought tickets on an ocean cruise liner, but he only had money for the tickets. He didn't have money for the wonderful food. He didn't have money for the activities. So all he could do was sit in his cabin all day long and maybe now and then take a walk on the deck because his ticket did not cover all the other fun activities that he would have been and could have been doing otherwise. So this is a rather extended story. It takes up the full several minutes that it takes me to find Bruce. I finally get up there. I find Bruce, second pew from the front. I say, hey, Bruce. He says, hey, how you doing? And he makes room for me and I sit down and I turn to Bruce and I remember saying to him, is this the part in the story where President Uchtdorf says that all the activities were covered in the guy's ticket? And sure enough, that's when President Uchtdorf drops the very obvious punchline of the story that he was telling. And Bruce looks at me in the dim light and he says, you're horrible. And of course, I had to laugh because, yeah, 
I am horrible. So that's the funny story about President Uchtdorf, at least I find it funny. And not only is it kind of funny, it also kind of illustrates that even with President Uchtdorf in his heyday at the height of his abilities, speaking in general conference, even when he told a story like this, it was pretty obvious, even to somebody who's not paying much attention and trying to find their way to the front of the chapel and find their friend in a darkened building, that even to such a person as that, it's pretty obvious where the story is going. Okay, so that's the general conference warm-up for tonight, i.e. the Gen Con warm-up. I'm going to be trying to start talking about different elements from the past general conference here starting tomorrow. And I think that probably what I'm going to be focusing on tomorrow is the new proclamation on the restoration. Because I've already mentioned how it's really just a warmed over version of the 1980 restoration proclamation that was given by Spencer Kimball on the sesquicentennial for the organization of the church in 1830, the sesquicentennial being 150 years later in 1980. That the new proclamation is just a warmed over version of that. I'll touch on that and explain why it is that I think that's the case and demonstrate why it obviously is the case. But there are actually a few things in this proclamation that are worth commenting on and things that I think were intentionally put in there so that they can be referenced later on when subsequent speakers in future general conferences will refer back to it and quote from it as authoritative doctrine as if it were yea verily even scripture given through a modern prophet of God. So that's about all for tonight. Remember, in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, wash your hands frequently with hot water and soap. Stay away from crowds. Maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. Oh, I almost forgot. I've got to share with you. I'm sorry. To lead into the final song, to the closing song, to the outro music, I want to share with you, very briefly, a comment that was left by a listener to this show at the RadioFreeMormon.org website and my response to that. Because this person, who goes by the name Dave, is in the middle of experiencing a very traumatic faith crisis. And as all of you know who've experienced a faith crisis, yeah, it can be really traumatic. You are unmoored from the place you've been moored to forever. Now you're starting to sail out into rougher waters. It can be a terrifying experience. So let me find this here really quickly. This is what Dave says on April 15th, 2020. Now, it's a very long and well-worded comment. It can be found at the RadioFreeMormon.org website. His comment is posted under episode 149, Overcoming Gravitational Fields. But I'm just going to read one part of it, and then I'm going to read my comment in response to it. Because I think that Dave may not be the only person in this position, and the comment I made to him may have application to some more of my listeners to this program. So here's what Dave says, and I think he really articulately expresses how it can feel to be in the middle of a faith crisis. So here I am now, Dave says, or writes, so here I am now in a void and confused, seeking further light and knowledge, not knowing where to find it, but at least I know it's not where I thought it was. So I think he does a great job of expressing how confusing, how disconcerting it can be to experience a faith crisis. He concludes by saying, so here I am lost in the wilderness seeking further light and knowledge. Thanks for all you do, RFM. It does help. And here's my response to that comment from Dave, which I'll read very quickly now. Thanks so much for sharing your experience, Dave. It isn't easy, that's for sure. I sometimes talk to never Mormons about what it is like to go through a faith transition, and they just don't understand how overwhelming it can be. How could they? They have no frame of reference. 
For me, it has helped to understand that just because I had a spiritual witness that the Book of Mormon is true or inspired, which Dave has as well, that's one of the things he's struggling with, that just because I had a spiritual witness that the Book of Mormon is true or inspired, it doesn't mean that's the end of the line. I shouldn't confuse the start of a journey with the end of the journey. I shouldn't confuse the start of an adventure with the adventure itself. Frodo's adventure started the minute he got pushed out of the Shire by the untimely arrival of some black riders. He might have thought it was the end of his adventure at the time, but he would have been wrong. The adventure was just starting for Frodo, as it is for you, as it is for all of us. Remember that saying by Jesus that the person who looks back after putting his hand to the plow is not fit for the kingdom of God? I think that might have some application here. But the kingdom of God is not the LDS church. How could it be? It is inside of you. At least that is what Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, a verse almost never cited to in the LDS church for some reason. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That's the quotation from Luke 17, 21. That's probably enough for now. Although I do want to go to my old book I write in and see if I can find something there that might be of use. Here it is. That took several minutes for me to locate. This is the thought that came to me on September 20th, 2013, in the course of reading a collection of sayings by Epictetus. Quote, and this is not Epictetus. This is the thought that came to me as a result of reading Epictetus, who was, I believe, a Greek Stoic philosopher. The first great peril in life's journey is to think that the key is the treasure. The second is to think that the treasure is to be kept. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.